It is Wednesday, July 1st here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Small, and we are ready to hit the second division in our team-by-team preview series. We dug into the AFC East last week. You can find that on DraftSharks.com now or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going to jump over to the East Division and the NFC, but first, we need to look back to the AFC East for a big move that happened right after our preview. It, of course, is Cam Newton. He is now a New England Patriot. Really, it's the move we've all been waiting for for a while now. Jared, what does it mean? It means the quarterback pool just got one more deeper. Cam Newton, I I think we're still seeing where his ADP is going to settle. And and I think we're all probably still trying to figure out exactly how we value him. To me, he's a risk-reward fantasy option at this point. I mean, we know the upside with Cam Newton. He finishes a top six fantasy quarterback in five of his first seven NFL seasons. But to me, there's just a lot of question marks at this point. I mean, we don't know how healthy Cam Newton is after having two surgeries on his throwing shoulder in the past three years and that lists Frank injury to his foot. So I think to me, there's questions with his arm and with his rushing ability, obviously going to be learning a new offense in New England that adds some risk and the you know group of pass catchers he's going to be working with is pretty weak. I mean, you know, there's a chance, chance Nikhil Harry emerges this year, which would obviously help, but it's definitely not a group that's going to elevate Cam Newton. So to me, he sits in quarterback two territory for me right now. Obviously, there's the upside for him to, you know, crack quarterback one territory, even be like a top eight quarterback just just because of the rushing ability that we know he he had at one point. Yeah, for sure. There are all those concerns there, and I agree with all that. We don't know the real contract numbers on him yet, as far as I, I know, and I checked spot track this morning. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what he's getting. We know that the incentives on his one-year deal can push the contract beyond $7 million. So, you know, I think that's instructive in that New England set him up for a prove-it deal, and there is that level where he can make some solid money, but we don't know if there's much guaranteed on the contract. So that's going to be what we have to watch going forward. Now, I'm not too worried about the receiving group in New England. It's bad, and it might it might be the worst group in the NFL, but when Cam Newton was the MVP of the league in 2015, he had Greg Olson leading the team at 124 targets. Ted Ginn was next at 97 targets. Then a rookie, Devin Funches. The only two other guys who hit 50 targets were Philly Brown and a 33-year-old Jericho Cotchery. So we've seen Cam Newton produce with weak wide receivers. And I know 2015 is kind of a while ago now, but even 2018, um, you know, before last season when we barely got any Cam Newton, he still finished seventh in fantasy points per game. He had the shoulder injury that was kind of developing as that season went on. So he still was a solid QB one for us. It's going to take watching all summer to see first where he is and then exactly what happens. But I don't think any of us really thinks that a healthy Cam Newton is going to lose out a competition to start to Jarrett Stidham. I don't think New England would bother signing him if that were a realistic possibility. And then, you know, the final question for fantasy owners is, what do you do with all that? I think it really depends on how you're drafting right now. If you're doing 
you know, a best ball team one at a time, you're treating each one as an individual chance to win something, then yeah, there's lots of risk to drafting Cam Newton right now. And maybe you just let somebody else take him at where he's going. But if you're drafting for volume for teams, I think you definitely get some Cam Newton shares in there in that QB2 territory that you're talking about because nobody else in that range beats Cam Newton on ultimate upside. We already know that his ultimate ceiling reaches at the top of the position. And I think even current Cam Newton has to reach into top six in upside. So, you know, it really depends on the individual drafter. I don't think you can look at anybody's rankings and say, that's where I'm going to take Cam Newton every time. Yeah. I actually like Newton better in lineup setting leagues where, you know, you could say pair him with another late rounder, like a Jared Goff, like a Jimmy Garoppolo, maybe um, who's a bit safer. And then if Cam doesn't work out, you can dump him. I think in best ball um, where you obviously can't make roster moves. I I want my, at least my top two quarterbacks to be a bit safer bets to play full season. So I guess I'm kind of out on Newton in best ball, but and once we get into more of the lineup setting formats, I'll be more interested in, in taking him. Yeah, that makes sense. And we'll certainly be watching him closely as we get further into summer, as we hopefully get training camp and as things start to develop in New England. We'll move on from Cam Newton now, though, to players that we know a little bit more about. As I said, we're doing the NFC East today in our spin through all the divisions and every team. And we're going to start with the Dallas Cowboys, Relevant coaching changes. Obviously, they finally fired Jason Garrett after nine and a half years as the head man there, another three and a half years as the OC. He had various coordinators through his run in Dallas. There was no OC for the first year under Garrett. Then he had Bill Callahan for three years. Then he had Scott Linehan for four years. And then Kellen Moore got elevated in 2019. Mike McCarthy arrives as the new head coach. He kept Kellen Moore. We'll talk about him more in a minute. But first, McCarthy spent 13 years as the Packers head coach. He arrived to a Packers roster that already had Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers at QB. It's tough to imagine a coach stepping into a more favorable situation than that, at least at quarterback. Two years with Brett Favre as a starter, then 11 more with Aaron Rodgers. Ten of McCarthy's 13 years found his Packers team among the top 12 in the league in yards. Nine of them found him among the top 12 in the league in scoring. McCarthy had five previous seasons as the Saints OC. He had one year as a 49ers OC. He had efficient offenses for a while in Green Bay, but he drew some criticism toward the end of his run with the Packers. Eight of McCarthy's first nine Packers offenses finished higher in passing yardage than they did in passing attempts. Eight of those nine also finished top 12 in net yards per pass attempt. So like I said, stepped into a situation with excellent quarterbacks and had an efficient pass offense for that time. Each of the final four seasons that McCarthy spent in Green Bay, however, found his teams finishing lower in passing yards than pass attempts. All of those four teams ranked 17th or worse in net yards per attempt, three of them outside the top 20, two of them ranked 31st in the league. One of those was 2017 when Aaron Rodgers missed nine games, but the other was 2015 when Aaron Rodgers played every game. So we saw some deteriorating wide receiver talent. How much to blame the longtime head coach for that? Tough to say. But there were big questions about his offense, whether he developed it at all over the time. Certainly the late results for McCarthy and Green Bay did not point to him adapting very well. Do you have any notes on the coaching front before we go to run pass split? I just think it's, I mean, it's interesting that McCarthy comes in as, you know, obviously an offensive minded head coach, as you've talked about, and that he retains the offensive coordinator from the you know previous Cowboys regime in Kellen Moore. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to find out if this is going to be more McCarthy's offense or more Kellen Moore's offense. 
I think it should be Kellen Moore's offense. I mean, the Cowboys were first in both total yards and yards per play last season. This was a really, really good offense. And especially in this offseason where, you know, teams are not able to get together so far. I think the, the continuity of going more with Kellen Moore's offense this season w- would be good. So that, that's that's what I'm hoping for. It's something we'll hopefully learn about more in training camp and preseason action. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, Mike McCarthy's been around for a long time. He has spent 19 years as just a head coach or a coordinator in the NFL, you know, on top of coaching experience before that. So the fact that he came in and retained Kellen Moore, who was a brand new OC last year, I think is a huge vote of confidence for what Kellen Moore started developing and the continuity of last year's Dallas offense. The Cowboys have been trending upward in passing lean over the past four years. It started out as basically a 50-50 pass to run in 2016, which I think made some sense for that offense because it was the rookie year for both Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott at quarterback. 2017 saw them go to 52% pass. 2018, they bumped to 57% pass. That was up over the second half of the season after they made the Amari Cooper trade. 54% pass in the first seven games of that season, even though they went just three and four. 59% pass in the final nine games of that season, even though they went seven and two. So they were winning more, yet they were also passing more. Last year, the Cowboys, 58% pass overall. They were about 50-50 in wins, 66% pass in losses. So we'll see how good the team is, and that's going to affect the pass-run split. But this team looks ready to pass the ball more than it did just a few years ago. Now that we've got a maturing Dak Prescott and a, a growing wide receiver core, Mike McCarthy's 13 Packers teams averaged a 60% passing share, even though they won 62% of their games. So this was a team that leaned pass even though they were successful, I think when you look at these Cowboys, they are definitely building toward being one of the strongest passing offenses in the league. The big extension for Amari Cooper, they drafted CeeDee Lamb in round one. I think it looks like an offense that even if the team is successful, could pass around 60% of the time this year. Yeah, I'm right with you. I think that that increase in pass rate is going to continue this season. As you said, you know, with I think they've just been, Cowboys have been putting more and more on Dak Prescott's plate. They've been investing in the pass catching core. It looks like, you know, th- this could be the best Last three wide receivers sat in the NFL by the end of the season. So I, I do think everything sort of sets up for this to be a bit more of a pass-heavy offense this year than we saw even last year. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, why don't you start us off with some QB notes on Dak Prescott? I mean, Dak Prescott was just awesome last year. He finished quarterback two in fantasy points. He also had the second most top 12 quarterback weeks behind only Lamar Jackson. Uh, Prescott finished top 12 in 10 of his 16 games. That included four top three finishes. So he had a nice floor. He also showed ceiling. And really, his season could have been even better. If you remember, he dealt with left hand, right finger and right shoulder injuries in December last year. And his production kind of tailed off over the final month of the season. He was a top 12 quarterback in just one of his final four games after finishing top 12 and nine of his first 12. Prescott also dealt with his pass catchers dropping 43 passes last year. That was a league high, nine more than any other team. So, you know, his numbers could have been even better. I think the injuries played a part. Now you get the upgrades in the pass catching core with CD lamb, basically replacing Randall Cobb. That should be a big upgrade. I think Blake Jarwin is going to prove to be an upgrade over Jason Witten. So, you know, to me, Dak Prescott, the, the pretty clear quarterback three in fantasy heading into drafts this season. And I think, you know, we'll talk about it at the end here, but I think he, he's a value where he's going in drafts right now. Yeah. And last year, overall career high in past attempts, 
career high in yards per pass attempt, career high in touchdown passes, a career high in average depth of target. So as the wide receiving core has gotten better around him, his passes have moved further downfield and with Kellen Moore in place, the 9.8 yards of a dot for Dak last year tied for fourth in the league. He still ranks just 18th among active quarterbacks in passing touchdown rate over his four years in the league. Now, I guess we'll kind of see as things go along if that's just a limitation of Dak as a passer or if it's just that he hasn't had kind of the ceiling season in that category. At the very least, I think there's potential for Dak Prescott to still have, you know, a six, a six and a half percent, maybe a seven percent touchdown pass season that, that really just could give him one of these enormous fantasy seasons and even lead all quarterbacks in scoring. I definitely think he, he has one of those seasons in him. Um, you know, again, I think this is a top five, maybe top three offense in the NFL. I think it's a strong pass catching course. I, you know, I think Dak has a 30, 35 touchdown season in him. We should also, of course, mention that the rushing ability that Dak brings averaging 305 rushing yards and 5.3 touchdowns per season over his first three or over his first four years in the NFL. Yeah. And that came down a little bit last year, especially on his uh, designed run plays. Um, According to PFF, he had 119 plus rushing yards on designed runs in each of his first three seasons. That was down to 50 last year, but his scramble yards have climbed each year. So Mm -hmm. I I don't think that we're going to necessarily see a big decline in the rushing stuff. Maybe his rushing touchdowns stay down. They were three last year. I think there were six each of three previous years. So, you know, maybe that happens, but if you trade that off and get a bump in passing touchdowns, I think ultimately it's not a knock against him. For sure. Yep. On the running back side, Ezekiel Elliott, of course, still leads the way. He did lose 24 targets and 23 catches last year versus the previous season. His target share dipped from 18% to 11.9%, but he still ranked ninth among running backs in targets and catches, 12th in receiving yards, and of course, third in PPR points. He's now been top five in each of his four seasons so far, including that year where he was suspended for six games, if you count by game where he was third in points per game. Yeah, I mean, the only question with Zeke is, you know, do you take him at two overall or is he, you know, three or four? I think, you know, he, he belongs in one of those spots. To me, Zeke Elliott, outside of Christian McCaffrey, is probably the safest pick in fantasy football. You, you talked about how productive he's been over his first four seasons. He turns just 25 years old later this month, has never missed a game in the NFL due to injury. So just super safe. I'd have no issue picking him second overall in, in fantasy drafts behind McCaffrey. I agree. I mean, for me, it's Christian McCaffrey. And then there's like four guys that could go in any order. And I'm not going to take the same guy second every time, no matter who it is. Does he have a lower receiving ceiling now than he did even a couple years ago? Yes. But could he be playing in the best offense of his career and thus get a career high in opportunities close to the goal line? Yes. We already saw Elliott's Red zone opportunities jump last season. He had 20 more red zone carries in 2019 than his previous high. According to Pro Football Reference, he had seven more carries than his previous high inside the 10, and he had a career-high 11 touchdown runs from inside the 10-yard line. And there was no meaningful dip in playing time with Tony Pollard joining the team. Yeah, and Zeke, by the way, the only running back last year to rank top 24 in half PPR scoring in all 16 of his games. Even McCaffrey only did it in 15 of his 16. So, you know, Zeke, beyond being a safe, you know, season-long pick, was also super safe from week to week, giving you a a high floor. Mm -hmm. Tony Pollard reached double-digit carries four times as a rookie. Week one was the first one where he split time basically with Zeke Elliott, who had just come off his holdout. All three of the other times that Tony Pollard hit double-digit carries were games that Dallas won by 20-plus points. So really, Tony Pollard's 
last year at least he was only relevant when the team was blowing opponents out and they just gave Elliott a second half breather. I think the early round 1180p on Pollard looks fine, but I think he's strictly a handcuff and I'm not chasing him any higher than that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, be- before Dallas spent a first round pick on CD Lamb, I thought there was a chance Pollard could have some standalone value, you know, d- doing some some of what Randall Cobb did in the passing game last year. But I, I think that's kind of dead now. Um, you know, that said, Pollard, maybe the highest upside handcuff in fantasy football. I mean, if Zeke goes down, I'd feel very confident that Pollard would produce RB1 numbers. Absolutely. Pass catcher notes, Amari Cooper delivered his first top 10 fantasy campaign in his first full season with the Cowboys, ranked ninth in the league in yards per target. One of three Cowboys receivers in the top 17 in that category, by the way. And then he got a $100 million five-year extension in free agency. So Cooper seems to be in a pretty good spot. Yeah. And he's been awesome as a Cowboy so far. You know, we have about a season and a half of of Cooper as a Cowboy. He's averaging five and a half catches, 77 yards, uh, 0.56 touchdowns per game as a Cowboy. That's a full season pace of 86 catches over 1200 yards and nine touchdowns. Um, you know, that that's obviously wide receiver one production. And I think the concern with Cooper this season for, for drafters is going to be volume, um, you know, with Michael Gallup emerging last season with the addition of CD lamb, but you know, Cooper didn't get massive volume last year, 119 targets ranked just 18th among wide receivers. He saw a 19.9% target share, which is on the low end for, you know, for, for a team's lead receiver. So I, again, how good I expect this passing game to be. I don't think Cooper needs big volume. I think, you know, he's, he's still a, a good bet for at least top 15 production again this season and, and could definitely finish as a top 12 wide receiver again. Yeah, he's probably less safe than some of the other wide receivers going in his range, but this is not the safest of positions. Everybody is volatile here. I, I wouldn't take Amari Cooper every time over like Adam yeah. Thielen and Allen Robinson and, and the other guys going around him, but I think he belongs in the range where he's going. And he he's been volatile from week to week, and he's especially been he's he's been awesome at home as a cowboy. He's averaging mm-hmm. over 100 yards per game at home, less than 50 yards per game on the road. So I I think he's even more volatile from week to week as some of those guys you mentioned like Thielen and Allen Robinson. I've started to see Cooper drop into like the fourth round of, of mm-hmm. best ball drafts, especially in best ball. Those ceiling weeks matter a bit more. So he's Cooper's a guy I've been taking quite a bit of when he gets into the fourth round or even in the late third round. Yeah, and I think once we get more into lineup setting, I think the Mm -hmm. difference with Amari Cooper is you need to be a little bit more willing to bench him at times during the regular season when they do have away games and potentially challenging spots than you might otherwise be to to bench a wide receiver that you take that early. Yeah, Cooper struggled away from home. He also has struggled, I think, as you were alluding to there, with tougher cornerback matchup. So I wonder now with Gallup's emergence and with Lamb added to the mix, if Cooper will you know, see see a bit softer coverage this season, which would obviously help. It'll be interesting. Michael Gallup actually beat Amari Cooper by four targets in their 14 shared games last year. He also beat Amari Cooper by 1.7 yards per catch. Gallup 16.8 yards per catch ranked seventh in the league among qualifiers last season. He finished 18th among wide receivers in PPR points per game. That was just two spots behind Amari Cooper who finished 16th. Yeah, just an awesome season from Gallup, a guy we liked coming in. Like you said, was was efficient, was, you know, basically a, a 1A to Amari Cooper. It wasn't like a, you know, clear 1-2 situation. Um, again, same kind of story with Gallup. I think people are going to be worried about the targets, but Jason Witten and Randall Cobb, both gone from last year's Cowboys team, those guys saw 166 targets combined. So I think there's plenty of room for Gallup to see similar volume to what he saw last year. Yeah, there's definitely room for everybody. I think the only concern I have here is that 
I don't know for sure what's going to happen. I think the range of potential outcomes includes Michael Gallup outscoring Amari Cooper. So that, you know, gives me a little bit of pause in drafting Cooper. Gallup is falling low enough where I'm just fine taking him where he goes. Of course, I think the range of potential outcomes also includes CeeDee Lamb outscoring Michael Gallup and being the second wide receiver behind Amari Cooper. So, you know, there's some uncertainty, but it's like, it's one of those good problems to have in that it's a strong offense with lots of good players and there's room for all of these guys to produce. Exactly. I just, I just want to invest in this Cowboys offense in the passing game, especially. I mean, you, you can argue that Gallup and even Lamb are maybe better picks than Cooper just because they're cheaper. You know, I, I would still bet on Amari Cooper leading this team in fantasy points. Um, so again, I'm fine taking him where he is, but I think Gallup and Lamb both have the upside to really crush their current ADPs. Mm -hmm. So CeeDee Lamb arrived in round one, 19.0 yards per catch career in three seasons at Oklahoma, scored on 18.5% of his receptions there. He joins an offense, as you mentioned, that shed 166 targets in letting Randall Cobb and Jason Witten walk last year. Each of those guys saw 83 targets. Cobb tied for 48th among wideouts in targets last season. And we just kind of got into the ADPs, but here's where they sit right now in drafting since the middle of June in best ball tens. Amari Cooper's wide receiver 12. He's going late in round three. Michael Gallup's wide receiver 29 going in the second half of round six. And CeeDee Lamb at wide receiver 45 going in the second half of round nine. Yeah, CeeDee Lamb to me was the the best wide receiver prospect in this year's class. I mean, 15.1 yards per target for Lamb last year. Just a ridiculous number. Uh, 3.99 yards per route run. The, The yards per route run and the yards per target were both easily the top marks among 30 of this year's best wide receiver prospects. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned Randall Cobb saw those 83 targets last year. I think that's a, a decent starting point for Lamb's projection. I think it's closer to his floor than his ceiling, though, just because I, I do think Lamb is, is a much better receiver already than, than Randall Cobb is right now. Yeah, I want to make sure that I have shares of all of these guys because I can see I can see the season being very nice for any of these three players. Definitely. At tight end, of course, Blake Jarwin, we've talked about on multiple shows already, takes over for Jason Witten as the primary tight end. We mentioned the 83 targets that Jason Witten leaves behind. Blake Jarwin had 41 targets last season, so 124 combined between those guys. Witten ranked 10th among tight ends with those 83 targets last season. So obviously, even if we like all the receivers, there is room for Blake Jarwin to be a successful fantasy tight end this season. Pretty simple argument for Jarwin. I mean, he has... The opportunity you mentioned in this passing game that we expect to be, you know, one, one of the three or five best in the NFL. Plus, Jarwin has been efficient when he's been given opportunities over the past couple of seasons. The Cowboys obviously like him. They gave him a pretty nice contract this offseason. And Jarwin, you know, with around 13 ADP is, is the cheapest part of this Cowboys passing game. So he's another guy I've been getting plenty of in drafts. Yeah, we'll get to that again in a minute. But as you mentioned, he's been efficient since he entered the league in 2017. Jarwin ranks 16th in yards per target among all tight ends with at least 40 targets. And he's much more of a downfield threat than Jason Witten. Last year, their average depths of target, Jason Witten, six and a half yards, Blake Jarwin, a little bit over 10 yards. So he can get exactly the same as what Jason Witten got last year and do more with it in this offense that we're so excited about. Yeah, Jarwin was even better last year than he was in 2018. Um, Last year, he was ninth in yards per route rung among 56 tight ends with 20 plus targets. Yeah. So who do you like here, Jared? I like everyone. Yeah. Literally. I mean, go back to Dak Prescott, quarterback four, which, you know, is only one spot lower than we have him ranked, but Dak's ADP is at the six, seven turn. If he gets in the seventh round, I think you compare Dak to some of the, you know, 
especially running backs we're looking at that area of the draft, even the wide receivers and tight ends. I, I think Dak makes a lot of sense there. So I've taken a lot of him. Again, we said Zeke is obviously a fine pick where, where he's going even up to number two overall. And then all three wide receivers I've been getting shares of. And then Blake Jarwin. I think Jarwin might be the best value on the Cowboys. Um, he's at tight end 19 right now with a 13th round ADP. I agree. I like everybody here. And I definitely think that Blake Jarwin is pretty easily the best value. Tight end 19 is just absurd. I believe that he finishes this season among the top 10 tight ends across formats. So he's he's one of the few guys that I would say I'll draft him every time. Yep, I'm with you there. Anybody that you don't like? No. I mean, I think, I think we mentioned everyone, right? I would only say that I'm not drafting Tony Pollard, especially sure. in, in, on best ball rosters, because I don't want to roster somebody that's just a straight handcuff. Yep. You know, that said... If we're talking about handcuffs, as you mentioned, it's basically him and Alexander Madison as the closest thing you can get to must-have handcuffs. Yeah, I'm with you in best ball. I think you know spending a 10th, 11th round pick on a handcuff in, in best ball when that guy is rarely going to start for you without an injury to the starter. I think that doesn't make sense. When you get into lineup setting leagues, I, I think Pollard is one of the, the few handcuffs I would consider taking it if I took Zeke or even if I didn't take Zeke. And I would only do it if I did take Zeke personally, because the downside to grabbing a handcuff running back is that you're just giving away a roster spot as long as the starter is healthy. So if I have Zeke healthy, he's not leaving my starting lineup. So I'm fine with giving away that roster spot for the insurance because I know that I have the one running back spot filled every week. If I don't have that, I'd rather save that spot for somebody else and grab because I I think there are other players in that range that can put up more standalone fantasy value and can potentially be week to week starting options. Yeah, that's fair. I think, I think Pollard definitely has less value to your fantasy team. If you don't own Zeke Elliott on to the New York giants, Jared, what are the relevant coaching changes here? Yeah, brand new coaching staff here. Um, Joe Judge hired as head coach. He spent the previous eight seasons with the Patriots as a special teams coordinator and a wide receiver coach. So he's a total question mark, but he's not going to have much influence on the offense. That's going to be Jason Garrett staying in the NFC East, going from Dallas to the Giants as the Giants offensive coordinator. Um, You know, Garrett had his shortcomings as Dallas' head coach, the butt of plenty of jokes, but he actually has a pretty solid history as an offensive play caller. 11 of his 13 Dallas offenses finished top half in the league in total yards. Seven of the 13 finished top seven in total yards. 10 of the 13 finished top half the league in points. Six of 13 finished top seven in points. He's been a pretty flexible play caller. You know, his six most recent offenses ranked 21st or lower in pass rate. And we talked about that a bit with Dak Prescott, you know, as as a young quarterback, I think the Cowboys leaned more on the run game, but Garrett's three offenses before that all ranked top 12 in pass attempts. So I don't think we, we can say he's, you know, a, a pass leaning or a run leaning play caller. He seems to be pretty flexible and, and adjusts his scheme to what he's working with as far as personnel goes. Yeah, I would say no discernible lean either way there. And I think we also have to kind of see what his offense looks like, because I mentioned in the Dallas section, he had several different offensive coordinators, including some experienced guys. I mean, Scott Linehan has been coordinating offenses for a while. I would imagine that was at least as much Scott Linehan as Jason Garrett on offense at that point. So I, I, I don't know. I guess we'll see. I, I have no idea whether Jason Garrett is a good thing or a bad thing for this Giants offense. Yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, I, I, I lean good, honestly, you know, just just what he did overall in Dallas. And, and he, he did have some quality offensive coordinators he was working with. And he had you know quality quarterbacks in Tony Romo and Dak Prescott. But I, I, I think Garrett is set up 
in New York with a pretty solid group of, you know, guys to work with on offense as far as quarterback and fast catchers go. Yeah, I agree with that. I guess the other reason that I say I don't know whether he's good or bad is that I don't think Pat Shermer was a bad thing for the offense. He, you know, he obviously didn't have much success overall. They went 5-11, and 4-12, and 12, but he's seemed like he's been a, a pretty decent offensive coach, especially when you look at the quarterbacks that he's had to work with at most of his coordinator stops. So I don't know. I, I guess we'll see if there's much of an impact either way in the switch to Jason Garrett here. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I also think, you know, in this, the offseason we've had, the teams with continuity and offensive system are probably going to have a bit of an advantage. So we're going to have to, you know, see how quickly all these guys can pick up Garrett, Garrett's offense. Mm-hmm. On the pass run split side, the Giants went 64% pass each of the past two years. I think part of that is them not being very good, 5 and 11, yeah. and 4 and 12. But they were also, they went 56% pass even in the four victories last year. So I think they were probably already pass leaning. They, they seem like they're built to lean a little bit that way anyway, because Saquon Barkley can't carry the ball 400 <laughs> times unless they want to kill him. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, there, there's a pretty nice group of pass catchers here. So I would, I would expect the giants to, you know, finish in the top half of the league, at least in pass rate this season. QB notes. What do you got on Daniel Jones? Yeah, I think it was a, a pretty promising rookie season for Jones overall. Um, he averaged 22.8 fantasy points per start. That would have ranked ninth among all quarterbacks. Now Jones was extremely volatile. He finishes a top three quarterback in four of his 12 starts, but he also finished 19th or worse in five of his 12 starts. So he was totally boomer bust. Um, but again, overall, I think it was a pretty promising season, especially when you consider the giants O line was not good. Um, Jones was, was pressured on 42% of his dropbacks. That was the second highest rate in the league. He also de- dealt with injuries to all of his weapons. There wasn't a single game last year when Saquon Barkley, Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, Darius Slayton, and Evan Ingram were all healthy. Barkley missed three games, Shepard missed six, Tate missed five, Slayton two, and Ingram eight. So he was dealing with injuries there. The pass catching core again should be healthier this season. I also think Garrett looks like a positive for Daniel Jones. Uh, Jason's Jason Garrett's offense has produced a top 12 fantasy quarterback in 11 of his 13 seasons in Dallas. Now, again, he was working with Tony Romo. And Dak Prescott, so he obviously, you know, is working with quality quarterbacks, but it does seem like a pretty quarterback-friendly offense as far as fantasy production goes. Yeah, I think perhaps the biggest plus for Daniel Jones, just in comparing him with other guys at the position, he ranked seventh among quarterbacks in rushing yards last season as a rookie. Seven games of 20-plus rushing yards among his 12 starts, so he is a plus in that category, which helps the fantasy floor as well as the ceiling. Moving on to running back notes, obviously Saquon Barkley is the biggest plus really at any position for this team. Second in the league in touches in 2018 as a rookie, second in the league in carries that year. He dipped to ninth in touches per game last season, but you know it was a bit of a broken season because of the ankle injury. After his return from that week three ankle sprain, he averaged 22.1 touches per game. That would have ranked fourth in the league for the season in terms of touches per game. 7.6 targets per game in 2018, though. That came down even after his injury last year. Five and a half targets per game after his return from the ankle. 2018, he was third in the league in red zone carries, third from inside the 10, second from inside the five, according to Pro Football Reference. The Giants were probably better than most people remember on offense that season. 16th in points, 17th in yards. 13th in DVOA. They were down in all three of those categories last season. So I think when you put it all together, Saquon Barkley's probably not getting back to the level that he was as a receiver as a 2018 rookie. If the offense is good, though, he can gain that back with goal line chances. And ultimately, you know, he's just the Giants' clear lead running back 
in absolutely every facet. So you can't really worry about the workload or worry too much about what he's going to do with it. I mean, I, I think Saquon's going to get big volume this season. Um, I, I, I still think there's, you know, you, you can argue he's the most talented running back in the NFL. I think, I think if, if someone's going to outscore Christian McCaffrey this season, I would bet on it being Saquon Barkley. I, I just think his his 2019 season was just defined by that ankle high ankle sprain he suffered in week three. Um, you know, the, the original reports after he got hurt was that he was going to miss four to eight weeks. He ended up only missing three games. Um, obviously wasn't the same player in when he returned, at least until the end of the season. The last you know, two or three games of the season, he looked healthy again. So you know, again, I still think he's an elite talent, and I think he's going to get that volume. You know, uh, Jason Garrett has a history of feeding his lead back big volume. Zeke Elliott obviously averaged 21 carries and four and a half targets per game under Garrett over the past four years. Prior to that, DeMarco Murray averaged 19 carries and a little over four targets per game across 2012 to 2014. And even prior to that, or sorry, in between Murray and Elliott, Darren McFadden averaged 15 carries and three and a half targets per game. So Barkley's going to get that volume. Um, I think he, he's a prime bounce back candidate this year. Obviously, everyone is on board with that because Barkley tends to be the, the second pick in fantasy drafts. Yeah, certainly no concerns about volume. Deion Lewis, they signed to a, one, a one-year deal. He doesn't move the needle in any direction for me. Uh, Saquon Barkley is the only running back I'm paying any attention to on the Giants, and I'm certainly not handcuffing anyone to him. And he's one of those guys in that mix of players that we alluded to in the Dallas portion where I can take Barkley second, I can take Zeke second, I can take Alvin Kamara second. We'll talk about all the guys in their their places. Yeah, to to me, Barkley's the upside pick at number two, and and Zeke Alley is the safe pick at number two. Over the pass catcher notes, it is a tightly packed group for targets. (laughs) Target shares for the games they played last year, Sterling Shepard, 22.2%. Evan, uh, Evan Ingram, uh, 21.6%. Golden Tate, 20.7%. Darius Slayton, 16.3%. Slayton had the big split with and without Evan Ingram. He only saw 9.4% of targets in the six games that he played with Ingram, 20.9% in eight games that he played without Ingram. As you mentioned, basically there were no games where all of these guys were together. I think there was one game where each of those four players was in the lineup. Yeah, this this group's just extremely tough to decipher because of all those injuries last year. There there were six games last year where the top three wide receivers, Shepard, Tate, and Slayton, all played together. In those games, Shepard led the way with 52 targets. Golden Tate's off 41. Darius Slayton was, was last with 34. Shepard led in catches with 34 in those six games, but Slayton led in both yards and touchdowns. So it, it's just, I think it's, you know, we don't know. We're just going to have to see when the season starts, you know, how these guys are going to be deployed, how the target share is going to split out. Um, you know, Slayton tends to be the most expensive among these guys in fantasy drafts. So I think, you know, that makes him the riskiest mm-hmm. of the three. Golden Tate's probably my favorite. He's cheapest for one. Um, you know, he was wide receiver 27 in PPR points per game last year. That was one spot ahead of Sterling Shepard, uh, a handful of spots ahead of Darius Slayton. And I think as we mentioned on last podcast, Golden Tate was a top 36 PPR wide receiver in nine of his 11 games. That was an 82% rate of top 36 finishes. Only Michael Thomas had a higher rate last season. So Golden Tate was an extremely consistent week-to-week fantasy option last year. I think that Darius Slayton being the most expensive in drafts among these guys is just another example of, you know, fantasy drafters reaching for the shiny newest toy. Because Darius Slayton was clearly behind these other guys in playing time and targets last season. And, you know, granted he was a rookie, so maybe there's, yep. he's ready for a step up this year, but he was also a day three pick 
who benefited from other guys getting hurt in front of him. So I definitely think there's room for him to take a step back, at least an opportunity, if not in performance in his second season. Yeah, Slayton also scored 39% of his PPR points for the season in just two games. He had, he had uh, big games against the Jets and Eagles, who you know were, were both bad wide receiver defenses last season. In his other 12 games, Slayton averaged just 2.8 catches, 39 yards, and .3 touchdowns. So he was, you know, for the most part, pretty useless outside of those two big games. Sterling Shepard has had injury issues. He has missed five-plus games in two of his four seasons now, has played every game in the other two. Last year, he had the two concussions, so that's a a worrisome thing. We'll have to watch that situation. I don't know how much we can downgrade him for that particular thing. As I mentioned, though, he did slightly lead the team in target share for the games that he did play. His average depth of target has actually moved a bit further down the field over the past two years, and Shepard has moved out of the slot. He started his career as clearly a slot guy, 86% of his time in the slot in 2016, 84% in 2017, 58% in 2018, and then last year he was down to 47% with Golden Tate aboard. Golden Tate was clearly the slot leader when he was playing 86% of his snaps came in there. And I think that's a bad thing for Sterling Shepard. I think he works best in the slot. And I do expect Tate to be the primary slot guy this season when all these guys are healthy. So I think that's a knock against Sterling Shepard. I think the concussions, you know, the two concussions last year are definitely a concern. All that said, again, you know, he did finish wide receiver 28 in PPR points per game last year, which is well higher than he's being drafted right now. So, you know, Shepard is a guy who I think you can consider. He's not, he's not exciting. He's not a guy I'm like, aggressively targeting but you know he, he has at least popped onto my radar in, in a few drafts because he does tend to go pretty late yeah I think he's a guy to not talk yourself out of when he comes up I never get excited yeah. when I see Sterling Shepard but I have to be like well there's nothing wrong with him where he's going Matt stop being a jerk about it and just considering <laughs> yeah, nothing exciting about the guy <laughs> you're right Evan Ingram uh list Frank injury last year required surgery in December he posted a video recently of being out of the boot running and cutting. That was earlier this week. He should be ready for training camp. We're obviously going to have to watch him this summer. I mean, Evan Ingram has struggled to stay healthy throughout his young career so far, but he's also produced when he has been healthy. Since 2017, only four tight ends have averaged more receptions per game. Those four guys finished top four in PPR at the position last season. Yeah, Kelsey, Ertz, Gronk, and Kittle, the only guys who have averaged more PPR points per game than Evan Ingram since he came into the league. Evan, Evan Ingram finished tight end five as a rookie in 2017, which you know we know rookie tight ends don't, don't finish top five. So that was an amazing rookie season. Ingram was seventh in PPR points per game in 2018, and he was seventh in PPR points per game again last year. So it just comes down to can he stay healthy? Like you said, he missed eight games last year. He's missed 14 total games through three NFL seasons. So a risk reward pick, but Ingram when he's on the field is a you know good bat to give you top eight tight end numbers. Yeah. And Jason Garrett's Cowboys were tight end friendly. Of course, the question was that because he had Jason Witten or did he help Jason Witten produce, you know, we'll see. I wish that Evan Ingram was going later than tight end six. But at late Mm -hmm. round seven, I will take some shares of him. I I think ultimately, if Evan Ingram does have a fully healthy season, he's certainly capable of getting into the top four mix. Yeah, and Ingram is is my favorite target among Giants. Like you mentioned, he has the tight end six ADP, but he's also going in the late seventh round. That's it's about a round and a half later than Darren Waller, who's tight end five. So there's a bit of a gap between five and six. I think Ingram. I'd rather have Ingram in the late seventh than you know Waller in the in the late fifth or sixth round. Yeah, I'm off on Darren Waller for that's like one of the primary reasons where I'm not bothering with Darren Waller. And we'll talk more about his situation when we get to that division on the who I like front. I I like the wide receiver group and I kind of had to talk myself into it 
Um, but this is certainly the time of year to take shares of it because you can just spread it around and see. But I think that'll carry over into the lineup setting portion as well, where you just take shares of guys outside of starter range and see what happens with the group. The ADPs, Darius Slayton's at wide receiver 40 is going in the middle of round eight. Sterling Shepard, wide receiver 48, late in round 10. Golden Tate, wide receiver 51, late in round 11. All of these are from best ball 10 drafts from the middle of June to today. I'm not in on Darius Slayton at that level mm-hmm. for the reasons I just said, but Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, I'll take some shares of both of those guys. Yep, I'm with you there. I mean, I don't have any strong takes on any Giants, honestly, but I do think Golden Tate and Sterling Shepard are both the values where they're going, you know, out outside of wide receiver four territory. Darius Slayton, I'm avoiding at wide receiver 40. I mean, he's going ahead of guys like Jamison Crowder, C.D. Lamb, Deshaun Jackson. I'm taking all three of those guys straight up over Slayton. Yeah, I agree. On the who I don't side, I don't like Daniel Jones at his QB 14 ADP. He's going in the first half of round 11, so is that a terrible price? No. But he's basically identical to Matthew Stafford and Tom Brady in ADP. He's about a round ahead of Baker Mayfield, a round and a half ahead of Jared Goff, and two rounds ahead of Joe Burrow and Ryan Tannehill. So I just I just don't see the reason. Yeah, I man, I don't, I don't hate Jones's price. I think it's like fair-ish. But, you know, th- those guys you mentioned, Jared Goff going behind him, Joe Burr going behind him, I'd rather wait on those guys. I, I would say, you know, if you if you expect the volatility we got from Jones last year to continue, if you expect him to, you know, give us those big top five, top three quarterback weeks, I do think he makes sense at his price in best ball drafts. I think that you should just wait two rounds and take Joe Burrow or Ryan Tannehill. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, Tannehill I'd argue with. I like Jones quite a bit better. But, uh, yeah, I, I think Joe Burrow at cost is a better pick. Joe Burrow could be this season what Daniel Jones was last. But why would you like Daniel Jones quite a bit better than Ryan Tannehill, who showed the ceiling last season? I just like Jones's weapons quite a bit more. I think he's going to have more pass volume than Tannehill's going to. I don't like it. I I like Ryan Tannehill straight up. I mean, beyond last season where he showed the ceiling of finishing as high as he did, he had other successful fantasy seasons with the Dolphins. So if I'm picking between those guys, and especially with Tannehill going later than Daniel Jones, it's pretty easy for me. And I'm not super interested in either guy, but Jones straight up over Tanny. (laughs) All right. That could turn into a bet if you're that set on Daniel Jones versus Ryan Tannehill. But since you're not super interested and it's getting a little bit long in the podcast, we'll move on to the Philadelphia (laughs) Eagles now where you might not think that there are relevant coaching changes there, but there's at least something worth tracking. Mike Groh was promoted from wide receivers coach to offensive coordinator in 2018 after Philly lost Frank Reich to the Colts. Mike Groh was fired after this past season, though. The offense ranked third in points, seventh in yards in 2017, eighth in Football Outsiders DVOA. That was Frank Reich's last season as the OC. That was also Doug Peterson's second season on the job. In the two years since, they finished 18th, 14th, and 16th in those categories, 12th, 14th, and 14th last season in those categories. So, you know, there are issues besides the coaching staff that made the offense dip, but Obviously, Doug Peterson wasn't satisfied with what Mike Groh did at the OC. For now, there is no offensive coordinator on the staff, but they did add Rich Scangarello as a senior offensive assistant. He was the Broncos coordinator last year after spending two seasons as QB's coach under Kyle Shanahan with the Niners. Marty Morninweg is back. He is a senior offensive consultant. He has spent 18 years in the league as either a coordinator or head coach, most recently with the Ravens from 2016 through 2018. There are two co-run game coordinators and there is a pass game coordinator, Press Taylor, who is also the QB's coach. He's been on the Philadelphia staff 
since 2013, which of course predates Doug Peterson. He's been the quarterback's coach since 2018. So there's some continuity there. It'll be interesting to see how things work out. Peterson, of course, has been at the helm for four years now. Three before that as the Chiefs offensive coordinator. He's got a pretty good record on offense. Six of those seven teams ranked top half of the league in scoring. And the 2018 Eagles have been his only offense that did not finish higher in points than it did in yards. Yeah, Doug Peterson's still a coach I want to bet on. I think you you look at the last three seasons between injuries to his quarterback or to his wide receivers that have really, I I think, played a big part in any disappointment from the Eagles offense. Still a unit I want to bet on. Um, One other note on the Eagles that I like, in Peterson's four seasons as head coach, Philly's finished third, third, eighth, and first in total offensive play. So it's been a high volume offense, which is obviously good for fantasy numbers. Yes, and that's my first point under the run pass split as well. They have run a lot of plays over his four seasons in Philadelphia. Only Baltimore has run more total plays, and they had one spike year that pushed them to the top of that category. The Patriots have have run have averaged the exact same number of plays as the Eagles over the past four years. Nobody else has run more plays. It's not a pass-heavy squad when we're talking about the splits. Philly has ranked 18th, 22nd, 9th, and 20th in passing share over that span. Part of that success, they were 7-9. In Peterson's first year when Carson Wentz was a rookie, then 13-3, and 9-7, and 9-7 and the past three years. Overall, the Peterson Eagles are averaging a 58.7% passing share over those four seasons. That's where I projected the Eagles for this year. Yeah, I'd at least expect them to pass more this year than last year if they just get better health from, from their wide receivers. And we'll talk about that a bit more. But I mean, there wasn't a team more ravaged by injuries at wide receiver last year than the Eagles. So I, I, I'm projecting them to throw a bit more this season. Yeah, we did still see the passing share climb a little bit over the second half after Jordan Howard went down, even though it was a limited crew of guys that he was throwing to. Well, yeah, and that makes sense too, I think. You know, I, I, I love Miles Sanders, but he's no workhorse back. And, and Boston Scott's the number two running back. So I think I think both running backs sort of point to maybe a bit more passing this season as well. QB notes, Carson Wentz ranked ninth in the NFL in passing yards last season, even though he had no wide receiver reach five. Hundred yards among all Eagles, only Zach Ertz eclipsed 607 receiving yards last season. Yeah, a pretty impressive season from Wentz. I mean, he finished quarterback eight in fantasy points with his top three wide receivers, Alshon Jeffrey, Deshaun Jackson, Nelson Aguilar, missing a combined 24 games. You know, by, by the end of the year, it was Greg Ward and, and Robert Davis and Deontay Burnett out there for Philly at wide receiver. So pretty impressive what Wentz did. That followed finishes of quarterback three in points per game in 2017 and quarterback 12 in points per game in 2018. Wentz, of course, dealt with his own injuries those two seasons. There was the the left knee injury, the torn ACL and LCL in 2017. Um, There was the back injury in 2018. So it just the past three seasons, it just hasn't all come together for Wentz. Either he's been hurt or his wide receivers have been hurt. But still, again, he's been a top 12 quarterback in points per game each of the last three years. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, I mean, he's getting Deshaun Jackson back. They add Jalen Rager. J.J. Arcega-Whiteside basically has to be better than he was last year. But there are plenty of other guys, even if he isn't. Carson Wentz started out draft season going like QB 12, maybe even just Mm -hmm. uh, outside that. He's up to QB 9, so there's been some climb. As long as he doesn't get higher than that, though, I I like where he's going. Yeah, I, th- I think he has the most upside among the quarterbacks in the range he's going. So he's definitely been a guy I've been drafting plenty of 
Um, I think my my last concern for Wentz, beyond the pass catching cores, I still think there are questions there. I mean, it almost has to be better this year than it was last, but I think there's still questions. But beyond that, the offensive line, Philly let Jason Peters go, uh, their longtime left tackle this offseason. And then they also lost their guard, Brandon Brooks, to a torn Achilles that he suffered in June. Brooks has been one of the best guards in football over the past couple of years. So I think you know this has been one of the best O-lines in the league over the past couple of seasons, but I think uh, there, there's more question marks heading into 2020. Yeah, I agree with that. They let Jason Peters walk. He's still a free agent, so it's not totally out of question that they bring him back. But they let him walk because they think Andre Dillard's ready to take over on the left side. But obviously, none of us really knows for sure until it actually happens. On to running back notes, another group that's going to depend on that offensive line. I think the Eagles still seem likely to add a veteran. They were reportedly in on the Carlos Hyde pursuit before he signed with Seattle. They've been linked to Devontae Freeman and LaShawn McCoy. It sounds like Freeman's probably asking for a little bit too much for any sign, any team to sign him right now. So we'll see what happens there. But I also think that if Philly were desperate to add somebody to this group, uh, there have been options, including Jordan Howard before they let him walk in free agency. Yeah, I agree. Miles Sanders is the guy in this backfield. I think it's it's just, you know, how how much volume does he get? And that's going to depend on, you know, whether Philly adds someone and the quality of player that they had. Um, you know, we saw Miles Sanders in that lead back role over his final seven healthy games of last season. That that includes the playoff loss to Seattle. In those seven games, Sanders averaged 15.4 carries and four catches per game. He averaged a little over 100 total yards and 0.6 touchdowns per game over those seven. Um, that full season PPR pace would have made him running back seven on the seasons. You know, that that's the upside. And that's, you know, 15 carries and four targets. I think that's that's definitely a feasible projection for this season, even if they do add a veteran to the backfield. Yeah, Jordan Howard went down in week nine. They had a week 10 bye. And then from week 11 on, not including the playoffs, Miles Sanders was 10th in non-PPR, 8th in PPR among running backs. And he did that while scoring only four total touchdowns, only scored twice on the ground in that span. He's bound to do better than that 1.9% rushing touchdown rate this season. Tied for ninth in the league in carries over that span. So they're giving him the ball plenty. I was initially apprehensive on Sanders at his cost this year. I've talked myself out of it. I mean, like I said, the Eagles are clearly not desperate to add a bigger back, even if they do end up adding somebody. Miles Sanders is simply the team's best running back in every role. He's going to get the ball plenty. I think the offense will be pretty good. And, I mean, the last time the Eagles drafted a running back before round four was LaShawn McCoy back in 2009. So say what you want about how Doug Peterson wants his running backs to be. It's pretty clear that the Eagles are big fans of Miles Sanders. Yeah, I think the Sanders detractors point to Peterson's history over the past four seasons with Philly and and him not committing to a, a clear lead back. But I mean, th- those those running backs were, you know, he had Ryan Matthews, but he, he couldn't stay healthy in Philly. You know, Darren Sproles, Wendell Smallwood, LeGarrette Blunt, Jay Ajayi, Corey Clement, Josh Adams, and, and Jordan Howard. I think, you know, Sanders likely emerges as the best running back that Peterson has had. And Sanders last year, he already became the first running back under Peterson in Philadelphia to average more than 13 touches per game. So he's already sort of bucked the trend. So I'm, again, I'm not worried about Sanders being in in a committee beyond, you know, what we see in basically every NFL backfield. I, th- I think Sanders is a pretty good bet to, you know, get around 20 total opportunities per game. Yeah, I agree. Boston Scott collected 38 of his 61 carries and 23 of his 24 receptions over the final four games last year. His receiving benefited from uh, that terrible injury-depleted receiving core that we've alluded to already. Even after Jordan Howard went down in week nine, though, Scott still carried just 26 times 
over the six games before a big finale to the season. And then in the playoff game, he saw nine opportunities to Sanders, 19. So mm-hmm. Austin Scott has some fans out there. I don't think he's really that much more than a handcuff, though. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not even sure he's a handcuff because I don't know if you know he would be you know a, even a 15 touch guy if Sanders went down. Maybe if they if they don't add anyone else, I guess he would have to be. But I'm with you that I don't think he's going to have a ton of standalone value. Um, you know, he he was PPR running back 23 over that four game stretch you mentioned, but that was with Alshon Jeffrey, Deshaun Jackson, and Nelson Aguilar all out for those four games. I think that definitely boosted Scott's target total. Um, you know, Sanders is capable in the passing game, so I don't think you're going to see Scott dominate running back targets this season. Um, so he, he's a guy I've been mostly avoiding in, in best ball drafts right now. Yeah, I'm not interested. And I think that if they do add a veteran running back, I think it probably hurts Boston Scott more than it does Miles Sanders. It seems like that move's probably coming uh, unless we get an impressive summer from somebody else. They still have Elijah Holyfield and Corey Clement on the roster, but the guy I'm curious to watch this summer is Mike Warren, who Mm -hmm. is an undrafted free agent. So, you know, odds are against him claiming a significant role, but Elijah Holyfield and Corey Clement were also undrafted free agents. And Boston Scott, I think, was a sixth round pick of the Saints. So, you know, we're not talking about Mike Warren against a bunch of other studs. So I think there's a chance that he carves out a role and kind of makes the need less for a veteran to take that role. Interesting dynasty stash, Mike Warren, even though he did go undrafted. I agree. Pass catcher notes, what do you got? Let's start with Deshaun Jackson, who I I think is one of our favorite values in drafts right now. Obviously didn't see much of him last year. He had the core muscle injury that limited him to just four snaps um, after week one. But that week one was massive. Eight catches, 154 yards, and two touchdowns against the Redskins. Djax played 69% of the Eagles' offensive snaps in that one. He led the team with nine targets. So pretty clear that he he was going to play a big role in this passing game before he got hurt. Um, Deshaun Jackson said he was back to 100% in March. You know, the, the core muscle in- injury shouldn't be something that lingers into 2020. You can question, you know, h- how much gas he has left in the tank. He is 33 years old now. But again, he had the big week one last year. Even go back to 2018, he averaged 18.9 yards per catch with the Bucks that season. He was 19th in PFF's receiving grades among 79 receivers with 50-plus targets that year. He was 9th among those 79 in yards per route run. So, yeah, he's another year, year older, but um, everything we've seen says that Deshaun Jackson can still be a big-time fantasy factor this season. Yeah, I mean, the guy led the league in yards per catch at age 32 in 2018. He <laughs> led the league in yards per catch at age 30. He led the league in yards per catch at age 28. It, chances are that he's probably still pretty fast, and he, t- he doesn't turn 34 until the very end of the season. Early December is when it is. So I, when you throw in where you draft him, there there's n- absolutely no reason not to draft Deshaun Jackson. I think I'm going to leave any more talk about him until later in this portion. Yes, agreed. The tight ends play as large a role here as anywhere else in the NFL. Second in the league in tight end target share were the Eagles last year at 38.3% behind only Baltimore. They led the league in 2018 at 35.4%, fourth in the league in 2017. I think that's going to continue, but Dallas Goddard, as we've talked about before, is the guy that's probably in for a drop. Yeah, Ertz and Goddard both benefited from the Eagles wide receivers injuries, you know, over the second half of last season. But Goddard 
got a, got a much bigger bump. He averaged just four targets per game through week nine last year. So, you know, that, that that's not a level where you can really count on him as a fantasy starter. Now, from week 10 on, he averaged 7.9 targets per game. Alshon Jeffrey and Nelson Aguilar, though, missed five of those games. Even Zach Ertz missed one of those games. So, Goddard, love the player. He's, you know, produced and given the opportunity. But if the if the Eagles have better injury luck at wide receiver this season, I think Goddard's volume is going to take a pretty big hit. Yeah, I think that fantasy drafters have shown that they're smarter now than they used to be because Goddard's not going inside the top 12, even though he mm-hmm. finished top 10 across fantasy formats last year, finished ninth among tight ends and targets last year. I think he's going to fall. I think everybody realizes that at this point. As you mentioned, 49 of his 87 targets came over the final six games, 22 in the final two. So uh, he's okay in tight end two range. I can't, I'm not going to argue with you too much if you take him 16th when you're building a best ball roster. But Zach Ertz is still the clear leader here. Second most receptions of his career last season. His targets, as you mentioned, climbed late in the year as well amid the wide receiver injuries. The big question, I think, is whether the wide receivers really draw a lot more. You know, we've talked about what they're getting back and what they're adding. The Eagles, though, in four of the past five seasons have thrown less than 50% of their targets at wide receivers. I don't think that that happens again this year, but it's certainly possible that it still happens. Yeah, and Ertz benefited from those wide receiver injuries over the second half of last season, but it wasn't a big boost. He averaged 10 targets per game over his final six, but he averaged 8.3 targets per game over his first nine games. Um, Overall, Ertz finished with a 23.5% target share last season. That was actually down from 26% in 2018, but the previous three years, Ertz was at 22.3%, 19.9, and 19.2. So you know he, he's been in that 19 to low 20s range. You know, we right now project Ertz at a 21% target share, you know, so down two and a half percentage points from last season. It still gives him 128 targets, which is the second most among tight ends in our projections. I personally like Mark Andrews just ahead of him because I think there's less target competition for him, but mm-hmm. Zach Ertz is right there for me as, as tight end number four. Yeah, I mean, Ertz is just, he's just, he, he's been a top three tight end, or sorry, he's been a top five tight end in three straight seasons now. Um, he he just has that rapport with Carson Wentz. I don't I don't think his volume is going to take too big of a hit this season. Yeah, I agree. Jalen Rager, since you're our rookie wide receiver guy, why don't you tell us a little bit about this guy? I mean, I was pumped when the Eagles took Jalen Rager over Justin Jefferson. I mean, I, I had Rager as the better prospect coming in. Glad the Eagles agreed with me. I think it's obviously a good landing spot with all the opportunity in Philly's wide receiver core. Rager had a, a disappointing 2019. He played with a freshman quarterback, Max Duggan. Per pro football focus, Rager saw the fourth highest rate of off-target passes of any receiver in the country last season. So I think that had a lot to do with his disappointing 2019. Prior to that, Rager broke out as a sophomore with 72 catches, over 1,000 yards, and nine touchdowns as a, as a sophomore. Um, and he led TCU in both receiving yards and touchdowns as a true freshman. So overall, a Pretty nice college career. Um, showed well at the combine with a 4 4 7 40 yard dash, strong marks in the vertical and broad jump. Uh, finished with a 93rd percentile spark score. So I like Rager as a prospect. I don't think he was the most NFL ready prospect in this wide receiver class. So that'd be my concern, especially again in this offseason where he, he's not getting the practice reps in the spring that he usually would. He, he's a guy I think we're going to have to monitor closely in training camp and hopefully preseason action to see how ready he is. Cause there's obviously a path for him to come right in and be a, a top two wide receiver on this team. Yeah. Very curious to see what his summer looks like. Doug Peterson said after drafting him that he would have to see exactly how to deploy Rager, because I think he's one of the players that, that can play outside 
and can play in the slot. So we'll see who is healthy for the Eagles and exactly where Doug Peterson likes him best. Clearly a path to targets. It's certainly not a lock to get them, though. But just imagine being a, an opposing safety and getting ready to <laughs> face Deshaun Jackson and Jalen Rager with Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard in the middle of the field. Miles Sanders coming out of the backfield. That's 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 a, again. So I think Carson Wentz has you know as high a ceiling as any of those quarterbacks going in that you know lower end quarterback one range. Yeah, where your depends when you're playing the secondary <laughs> against the Eagles this season. Before we get out of the pass catchers, we should mention JJ Arcega White, Arcega White side again, <laughs> and him versus Alshon Jeffrey. So the first question will be Alshon Jeffrey and when he's ready. As of mid-June, Alshon Jeffrey says he's expected to be running soon, quote-unquote soon. That report was from Tim McManus of ESPN. So we'll have to watch and see if Alshon Jeffrey is uh, ready because we've also heard reports that the team doesn't expect him to be ready for the beginning of the season. Yeah, I'm out on Jeffrey, at least for now. And even if he like gets back on the field in training camp, I'm not super interested. Um, he had that Liz Frank injury on December 9th. I found a, a study from 2018 on... 35 NFL players that suffered Liz Frank injuries, 83% of them eventually returned to play, but the average timeline for return was 10 months. Um, you know, 10 months for Alshon Jeffrey would keep him out until October 9th. So, you know, that, that would probably land him on the pup list if he's going to miss the first month of the season. Um, the study also found, quote, a significant decline in performance one season after return compared with pre-injury levels. So, you know, th- these guys don't produce the same level in their first season back from Liz Frank injuries. I think Jeffrey was already a guy probably on the, on the you know decline at his age and at, with his history of lower body injuries. So I'm just, Jeffrey's cheap in fantasy drafts. I'm not going to, you know, kill anyone for taking them, but he's, he's a guy I just, I'm not interested in at this point. I'm not drafting him right now. We'll see uh, what things look like in the summer. I wonder though, if the Liz yeah. Frank stuff means that we should bring down our expectation for Evan Ingram as well. Yeah, that's definitely possible. I, I've read stuff on Ingram's injury. I think it was like a, a more minor form of a list Frank injury. Mm, okay, well, we can talk further about that, maybe offline here. Let's move on to who I like, and God, it's the easiest pick of any team, Deshaun Jackson. <laughs> every single year, people ask the stupid question, who is the player you want on every team? Because there should never be a player you want on every team, and the answer is always going to be a late-round guy. But that is why Deshaun Jackson is the best answer to that stupid question for 2020. He is wide receiver 56 in best ball 10s ADP right now. I mean, that should be the ideal place to draft Deshaun Jackson. If you're not drafting him at like wide receiver 36 in that kind of format, then there's something wrong. He's the middle of round 12. You can say that Deshaun Jackson will get scarier as an option when we get to lineup setting. (laughs) I'm not scared to draft him outside the top 40 there either. I mean, a pretty clear path to leading Eagles wide receivers in targets. So is he going to be volatile? Absolutely. Are most wide receivers volatile? Absolutely. Give me Deshaun Jackson on every single team this season. Yep. You said it all. Um, No argument here. He's a guy I've been drafting on basically every best ball team I've drafted so far. Um, So love DJX. Again, I like Carson Wentz at quarterback nine. He's going at the nine, 10 turn in these best ball drafts. You know, we, we see quarterbacks drop. There's usually a run in the, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th round, but Carson Wentz is definitely a guy I like taking uh, at the, you know, bottom of quarterback one territory. And especially when it's so easy to stack him with Deshaun Jackson. Yes, definitely. Who I don't like, I still don't like Dallas Goddard. Like I said, I won't argue with you too hard if you're drafting him where he's going, but he's just not somebody I'm interested in that range when there are still guys like Blake Jarwin on the board. Exactly, yeah. Goddard, tight end 15, so not not crazy, but 
Jarwin going behind him, TJ Hawkinson going behind Dallas Goddard, uh, Jonu Smith going behind Dallas Goddard. I, I prefer those three guys pretty easily. I think stacking Dallas Goddard with Zach Ertz probably makes a little bit more sense than drafting Goddard as a standalone. Yeah, it makes sense. It's also kind of expensive, though. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm certainly not chasing him anywhere. I'm also, as I said, not particularly interested in Boston Scott. He goes too late for me to say he's a bad pick. But I, like I said, I think he's more of a handcuff, and I'd rather take somebody with more standalone value. Yeah, I'm pretty much out on Scott at running back 50. He's going in the 12th round. Again, I'm out on Alshon Jeffrey, even at wide receiver 68. Um, so there's obviously no bad picks down there, but there are other wide receivers in that range I'd much rather have. Um, and the last guy is Jalen Rager at wide receiver 52. You know, he, Rager's still going ahead of Deshaun Jackson, which makes it tough to take him. I do think you know maybe taking Rager and DJX back to back in like the you know 12th and 13th round that could make some sense. Absolutely, take Wentz, take. Uh, Rager and take Deshaun Jackson and then just enjoy yourself (laughs) where you might not enjoy yourself though is in Washington that's our last team for this show Jared tell us about the coaching changes yeah new staff here Um, head coach Ron Rivera coming over from Carolina bringing Scott Turner with him as offensive coordinator Um, Turner worked under Rivera in Carolina for the past two seasons Turner has very little history as an offensive play caller in the NFL Um, he he replaced his father Norv Turner as the Panthers OC for only the final four games of last season so not a whole lot to go on here the Panthers did go 68% pass in those four games under Scott Turner they also went 0-4. They got outscored by 90 total points in those four games. So that was definitely, you know, I think a game script-induced pass rate. So kind of a question mark, Scott Turner. is the, the one note I wanted to make with the Redskins here, they ran a league-low 885 offensive plays last season. That was only the second instance of a team running fewer than 900 offensive plays in a season since 2010. The other instance was the Dolphins in 2018 with 878 plays. The Finns ran 144 more plays the following season. So I think almost by default, we can expect the Redskins to run, you know, quite a few more plays this season. And that volume obviously helps all the fantasy guys here. Yeah, I think the volume question is really the closest thing to being interesting. (laughs) It's really hard to get very interested in a lot more. Uh, What about the run pass split? Yeah, again, I don't have anything there for Scott Turner just because you yeah. know, we, we don't have anything on him. Again, he went past heavy in Carolina last year because he had to. I think we're going to see something similar in Washington this year. This is not going to be a good football team. They're going to be playing from behind a bit. And I think that the, the Redskins easily get over a 60% pass rate this season. The bad team could definitely inflate passing volume here just like the Panthers last year. They also have 103 running backs on the roster, though. And they're coming <laughs> off a terrible debut for Dwayne Haskins, so... I think they're going to want to run the ball more and not lean too heavily to the pass. But, you know, ultimately, I don't know. There are so many unknowns to this that I think it would be wrong to say this is what's going to happen. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, let's let's talk about – let's get into Haskins, though, because I don't think his debut was as terrible as you do. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, for <laughs> – for starters, he was obviously in a, a bad spot. I mean, the Redskins were a bottom two offense in points and total yards last season. You know, I think arguably – the worst pass catching core in the NFL. Um, they fired their head coach, Jay Gruden, five games into the season. So there was some, you know, change there in coaching staff. Haskins struggled in his first four starts, um, 54% completion rate, six yards per attempt. Over his final three starts, though, 67% completion rate, 8.1 yards per attempt, five touchdowns versus just one interception. Haskins ranked eighth 
in PFF passing grade among 35 qualifying quarterbacks over that final three game stretch. So I, I think he at least showed improvement. I think, you know, he was a pretty highly regarded prospect coming into the league. The Redskins took him 15th overall. He had just one starting season at Ohio state, which again, I, th- I think, you know, you, you could use as a, as an excuse for a shaky start to last season. He's still a pretty um, inexperienced passer, but his one season at Ohio state was big. Um, 70% completion rate set big 10 records with 4,831 passing yards and 50 touchdowns. So still, still a major question mark Dwayne Haskins is, but I think most people have sort of just written him off after seven rookie year starts in a bad offense. I still think there's a chance Haskins kind of, you know, proves to be the Redskins answer at quarterback. So here's my thing. I'm definitely not writing him off. I definitely don't think that after one year, he's a bust. I think that the bigger thing is that there's no, I don't see any reason to think about him much because I mean, is it possible to build a case for him to be fantasy relevant? Yeah. But is it possible to build such a case for every single guy who is clearly his team's QB starter? Yeah. I think Dwayne Haskins basically overall has to be better than he was last year, but that's because he and his team were so bad last year among 105 players since the 1970 merger who have been drafted in the first round as quarterbacks. He finished 57th in passing yards, 58th in fantasy points per game among the 62 quarterbacks in that group who have thrown at least 200 pass attempts in that rookie season. He ranked 47th in fantasy points per game. So he's low. Now there are other good players who finished below him there and the positives Dwayne Haskins was 34th in touchdown rate. He was 23rd in yards per pass attempt. So again, I'm not writing him off. I certainly think he can turn into a good player and he might not be a a knock against everybody else, but I'm also not even slightly interested for fantasy purposes this year, unless we're talking about two quarterback super flex or like cheap DFS option. I'm with you. Haskins is only relevant in two quarterback super flex leagues, maybe as a, you know, super late round quarterback three, in best ball, just because, you know, you're hoping you're going to get 16 games out of him. I think, you know, Haskins matters more to the rest of this offense and, and, you know, whether or not we can buy into some of these other pieces. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the running back notes. Darius (laughs) Geis, past three seasons have all been shortened by lower body injuries. Uh, Last year was an MCL sprain in 2018. He had the August ACL tear. His last year at LSU, he had a nagging ankle sprain, played through it a lot of times, but it clearly cut into his production. Geist was effective when he was on the field last year, though, for Washington. He took 21.4% of his rushes for first downs. That was a better rate than, among other players, Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara, Saquon Barkley, and Nick Chubb. The O-line and the offense, I still think, are not promising, but Darius Geist is going running back 33 in ADP, middle around seven at best ball time. So, I mean, it's really tough to knock him as a fantasy draft option. Yeah, he's a fine shot to take at that price. I mean, I, I, I still believe that Geis is the most talented guy in this backfield. He, there's obviously not a whole lot to talk about um, with him as a pro because he, he's, he's just been hurt. Um, but, you know, he, he was a high-end prospect coming into the league, a second-round pick, 224-pounder. Um, Geis led the SEC in rushing yards and touchdowns as, as a sophomore, had a pretty nice junior season despite some injury issues. So I still think he's the most talented guy. You know, I don't know what the injuries have done to his ability. The Redskins obviously aren't you know, totally counting on him considering all the additions they made to this backfield along with bringing back Adrian Peterson. So um, you, you can't count on Geis for your fantasy team this season. But again, at, at the price tag, 
if he can stay healthy, if the offense takes a bit of a step forward, you know, you could definitely see guys at least being a running back two in fantasy this year. Yeah. And I think if he is healthy, I would expect him to push Adrian Peterson aside for the carry. Yeah. Lead and, and also not be a zero in the passing game. Adrian Peterson rebounded the past two years after his, his 3.4 yards per carry in 2017, in that split season between new Orleans and Arizona, 4.2, 4.3 in yards per rush the past two seasons. He's heading into his age 35 season at this point though. And he also looks like he's cuttable for less than a $1 million cap hit. If you know, things are going right for them and they just want to go with younger players this summer, um, so not necessarily a roster lock, it seems like, for Peterson. You know, we'll see. I would bet on him being on the roster, but the, it's worth noting at least. I think the most interesting competitors behind these guys for roles are Bryce Love and Antonio Gibson. Yeah, Gibson's the guy I'm excited about and the guy I've taken in quite a few drafts, especially in drafts where I don't go running back heavy to start. Gibson's a guy I've been targeting in like the you know 11th or 12th round. A really interesting prospect. I and mean, he, he didn't get a lot of opportunities at Memphis, just 77 touches over the past two seasons was, was sort of like a running back wide receiver hybrid, um, but super efficient, 19 yards per catch, 11.2 yards per carry. Then he goes to the combine at 228 pounds, runs a four, three, nine, 40 time, 83rd percentile spark score. Redskins took him six, 66th overall, which is earlier than I expected him to go a pretty significant investment. So um, I, I think Gibson has a chance to, you know, not, not emerge as the Redskins lead, ball carrier this season but to be a guy who contributes both on the ground and and in the passing game and you know if guys can stay healthy you know that could that could obviously give Gibson a much bigger opportunity yeah I mean there's room in this offense I think for him to be something like Tariq Cohen for Chicago and yeah maybe at better efficiency with better speed Chris Thompson averaged 3.9 receptions per game over the past three years he is of course left for Jacksonville and you know as you mentioned with where you're taking Gibson you don't have to really invest to take a shot on him. He's going um, in FFPC drafts. He's going in the first half of round 13. He's a running back mm-hmm. there. Interestingly in best ball tens, he's a wide receiver in, in their system. So he's yeah. going wide receiver 67. He's going late round 15. I think maybe there's even more room for him to be a value there because you're talking about a three wide receiver lineup that you have to fill each week in a, in a best ball. So there's three wide out spots, the one flex spot. So four players every week at a position where the top mm-hmm. players are getting fewer touches per week. I think there's more room for Antonio Gibson to, to pop in, you know, three, four starter weeks. He's a, a strong value at that level. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, I think relative to his peers, he has more value at running back. But um, you, you talk about the extra uh, starting lineup spots at wide receiver and the fact that, you know, like you said, he's going in the 15th round in best ball tens. That's, you know, three, four rounds later than he's going in FFPC where he's listed as a running back. So I, I think he makes sense in, in both formats. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Pass catcher notes where we start with the first guy that oh, yeah. is the first guy. And I'll let you start talking about him. We've talked about him a lot. <laughs> Might as well hit on him again. Yeah, Terry McLaurin. Um, I'm I'm the high guy on him. You're the low guy. Yeah, I, I think so. So he, he had a he had an awesome rookie season. I think, especially considering the environment he was in. Um, 58 catches, 919 yards, seven touchdowns. Finished uh, wide receiver 29 in PPR points. Again, in what was a, a bottom two offense by basically any metric. And and McLaurin was super efficient. He averaged 9.9 yards per target. That was 11th best among 79 wide receivers with 50 plus targets last year. It was. 
almost four yards better than all other Redskins wide receivers managed. Uh, all the Redskins wide receivers averaged just 6.0 yards per target. Uh, McLaurin also ranked 14th among those 79 wide receivers in yards per route run. He was sixth among those 79 wide receivers in PFF's receiving grades. Football Outsiders ranked him 12th in DVOA among 81 qualifying wide receivers. So super impressive rookie season. And I just think he's in, I think he's in for big volume this season. Again, I think the Redskins are a good bet to run significantly more offensive snaps this season. I think they're going to be trailing a bunch. So that's going to, you know, bump up the pass rate. It's a weak wide receiver room behind Terry McLaurin. You know, we'll talk about the other guys, but it's Steven Sims, Kelvin Harmon, rookie Antonio Gandy-Golden. Um, the tight end group is probably the worst in the league. So McLaurin already saw 22.5% of Washington's targets in his 14 games last year. I think I think that mark could rise in 2020. And I think, you know, as I said, we've talked about him a lot. So I think that the important thing to note here is that as the low, quote unquote, low man on Terry McLaurin, I just think he's fine at cost. I'm not reaching ahead of ADP. Do I think he's capable of outscoring that? Yes, because he was awesome last year. Top 14 over the first six weeks. The rest of the way, though, just wide receiver 45. 22.5% target share last year over his 14 games. That would have ranked 11th in the league. So even if his target share doesn't climb, there's certainly room for that to be strong volume and for that to help push him above ADP. I don't want to hit 2020 with no Terry McLaurin. I just don't want to overinvest in him in a range where there are lots of upside guys available. So I'll be curious to watch reports on Dwayne Haskins and maybe see some Dwayne Haskins in preseason this summer to see how he looks. But I like Terry McLaurin. I hope he has a very good second season. Yeah, that's fair. And, and there are there are risks here. I mean, I think for starters, the, the fact that McLaurin wasn't a high end prospect by a lot of the metrics we look at coming into the league. I mean, you know, he didn't he didn't put up big numbers either raw or market share at Ohio State. You know, he was just a third round pick. So that that's the risk. The other risk obviously is Washington's offense in general and the quarterback play between Haskins. Uh, I, I do think it's still worth mentioning the um, Ohio State connection though that McLaurin has with Dwayne Haskins that, you know, they played together at Ohio State in 2018. And McLaurin wasn't very good in those first four Dwayne Haskins starts, but in Haskins' final three starts last season, McLaurin went for four catches, 57 yards, and a touchdown, five for 130 and a touchdown, and then seven catches for 86 yards. So those two really got going um, over those final three starts for Haskins last season. I mean, it certainly can't hurt that they went to college together, but he also finished fourth on the team in catches in Dwayne Haskins' starting season, so I wouldn't overrate that. That's fair. We'll move on to Kelvin Harmon, and I don't think there's, I don't think it's really worth spending a whole lot of time or anybody else here. I mean, Kelvin Harmon. Yeah. 50% playing time just twice over the first nine weeks last year after the bye that jumped to at least 66% in each of the final seven contests. He saw 15.9% of the targets over that span with more playing time. Now he faces competition from round four pick Antonio Gandy Golden. I mean, because we have a fantasy site, we'll have to watch this competition and see what happens. <laughs> but I can't say that I'm very interested in terms of tracking who I might draft this summer. No, I'm not interested in Carmen or Gandy Golden right now. The other guy I am interested in, it's as a super late pick in PPR draft, is Steven Sims, who it seems like he has the slot job in Washington um, pretty much locked up. I know Trey Quinn is still there, but um, after what Sims did down the stretch last season, he, Sims was actually uh, PPR wide receiver 15 over the final five games of last season, caught 23 balls for 259 yards and four touchdowns in those five games. Now he saw a 30% target share over that span. He scored on 17% of his catches. Th- those, those marks 
are not going to be repeated this season. But I still think there's a chance that, you know, Sims finishes second on this Redskins team in targets. And if they do, you know, run more plays and they do pass it, you know, 65% or whatever, because they're trailing a bunch, you know, that, that could mean 80 or 90 targets for for Sims this year. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can <laughs> Steven Sims is going late, so I'm not going to argue against any enthusiasm for him. Am I drafting a 90 target receiver in this Washington offense? Absolutely not. <laughs> and I think the people who are Steven Sims fans and, you know, talking them up on Twitter are going a little nuts and not, paying attention to reality. So, I mean, if you want to take Steven yeah. at the end of your draft, cool. I, I really don't care either way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the argument is a 90 target receiver who's going 80th at the position in the right. 18th round. I mean, I think if you can get 90 targets at that price, it, it's worth it. Sure. If he's your wide receiver eight, then go for it. I would <laughs> rather take Russell Gage and for Atlanta, if we're looking in that range, but I mean, I'm not going to arm wrestle somebody over their seventh or eighth receiver. Fine. One more guy that I want to mention is Logan Thomas, and I think he's the only interesting player in an ugly tight end group for Washington. It's been four years now since he converted from quarterback to tight end with the 2016 Bills. He out-targeted Jesse James as the number two tight end in Detroit last season. Then Thomas signed a two-year deal with a little bit more than $2 million guaranteed for this season with Washington. Um, Ron Rivera has, has talked him up a little bit. You know, we'll see about the summer buzz once things really get going. Jeremy Sprinkle was their lead tight end last year. He finished seventh on the team in targets, so I consider him a non-factor. I think Logan Thomas yeah. is really the only guy to pay any attention to. I think he's probably going to be a waiver wire watch guy in most mm-hmm. leagues, but I think he's worth considering as a very late shot in FFPC drafts right now. Yeah. So it's Logan Thomas sprinkle and then um, undrafted rookie Thaddeus Moss from, from LSU in, in this tight end core. And I, I think it's the worst tight end group in, in the NFL. I, I would bet on Thomas emerging as the top guy. I don't know. We, we just haven't seen enough from him. And again, this isn't an offense we want to be heavily invested in. So I can't say I'm interested in Thomas right now, but yeah, he's, he'll be a guy to monitor um, at least as a waiver wire option, if he does emerge as Washington's elite tight end. Right. I would say, I would call him somebody to be aware of, not a sleeper. Yep. Agreed. Who I like, honestly, not really anybody. I'll take <laughs> various guys, Terry McLaurin, Antonio Gibson at cost. As I said, maybe a very late Logan Thomas in a 28 round FFPC draft, but really that that's pretty much it. Yeah. McLaurin's the only guy I'm like going after in drafts, you know, wide receiver 24 in the fifth round. That is, that's higher than he was going even like a month ago. I think he's up like four or five spots um, among wide receivers. So it'll be interesting to see how high he climbs, but I still like him at that price. Um, I think Antonio Gibson, probably my second favorite target in Washington. If I can get him in like the 11th or 12th round in FFPC drafts, I like that. Beyond that, um, you know, Steven Sims, Darius Geis, guys I'll consider if they drop beyond ADP, but not targets of mine going into drafts. Yeah, who I don't like this team. I would rather be out of everybody than champion yeah. any Washington player. Yeah, you're you're probably not going to get hurt if you're just out on the Redskins this year. <laughs> yeah, I don't ex- I don't expect to be hurt by it. That's going to do it for this NFC's preview edition of the podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now to see how we project all of these guys. You can also get sneak peeks at Jared's full player profiles on Carson Wentz and Evan Ingram. You can check out his recent dig into the sophomore wide receiver class, which of course includes Terry McLaurin, and listen to last week's AFC East preview podcast, which did not include Cam Newton. Become a DS Insider to get all the info and the tools that will help you dominate your drafts all year. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. Jared is at SmolaDS. I am at ShoutDS. That's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Jared Smola and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Shout saying thanks so much for swimming with us. 